Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey, everybody. I'm Kevin Cruz, CEO and founder of LeadX, and this, of course, is the LeadX Leadership Show. Now, you're going to hear me laughing along with today's guest, who I found to be delightfully authentic. What a fresh personality. We had our pre-chat before the official interview, and we just clicked. You're going to hear us just click and start geeking out on remote work and impact of coronavirus and all kinds of things. And he's so authentic. He's so funny. He even brought up a bad review of his own book. I mean, who, who does that? It's just great. Now, before I launch into this interview, I want to remind you, the LeadX app, you can just download it from the Apple Store or the Android Store. Uh, there's a free trial. It's designed to make you the best boss you can possibly be. It's designed to uh, help you to stand out and get ahead at work, jam-packed with webinars in the archive, book summaries, uh, action plans, Coach Amanda gives you behavioral nudges, all designed to help you to excel at work. Check it out, free for seven days. That's the LeadX app, L-E-A-D-X. Now, our guest has worked as a senior executive for some of the world's top tech companies, eight years at Twitter, Google, YouTube, and it was his own personal pursuit of the secrets of great leadership, great culture, that led him to doing all this research and interviewing many of the world's experts on those subjects. And he put his conversations together as episodes of, a, of his own podcast show called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And that podcast has been number one business podcast in Europe, often number one here in the States as well. And he has a brand new book with the same name, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Our guest is Bruce Daisley. Bruce, yes. This is Kevin Hello Cruz. There. How Hello, are you? Kevin. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm great. We're uh, seeing and hearing each other, so it's good oh, already. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never fully know which um, button to press because some people, you know, some people don't like the video. And then in the <clears> past, <throat> I've joined with video, and then you feel a bit like you've walked out of the shower with no towel on. <laughs> that they, that they're not video, and then you're like, should I turn the video off as well? I, you know, I hate walking out of the shower without a towel on and finding out the videos on me. It happens all the time. <laughs> you How must be you? running around like crazy. Congratulations on a fantastic book. Yeah, well, I was in, the, I was in New York last week and then uh, I was going to be on the West Coast next week. But with, with all that's been going on, mm. um, all of the things that I had planned canceled. So... Oh. Um, it's like it's once a generation sort of disruption, isn't it? I can't, I can't think of anything close to it. Yeah, that's that's true. So I'm assuming you're back home now. Are you in England? That's right. Yeah, I'm. Up, that's right. Yeah, I just I'm not sure which events you were um, going to be doing next week. I was going to be out at the the big Saster conference in San Jose. Oh, I'm in really? Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia is my home base. That's where I am here, and. Um, Saster, you know, for tech is for Silicon Valley is like 15,000 people, you know, yeah, it's a yeah, big yeah. annual thing. I think everyone was watching it and they just kept saying, we're a go, we're a go, we're going to, you know, thermal scan you, we're going to uh, have the, the sanitation stations everywhere and all the no, no handshakes. And um, this morning I wake up, so the conference starts on Sunday and wow. you know, there's, there's airfare, there's hotels. 
And just this morning, they send the email, we've canceled. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So, um, and were you speaking there? Uh, I had meetings scheduled. I wasn't okay. speaking at, okay. at this particular one. Um, it, and it was actually one of the few educational things that mm -hmm. I would do, you know, as well as ha half networking, half, you know, education. And to your point, I mean, you know, you know been, we've been in business, we've seen a lot of things. Um, but the number of cancellations and mm -hmm. the way so many companies are now, um, you know, telling people to stay home. I, I literally, one hour after we're done here, I'm doing a remote uh, free training on how to uh, lead remote workers and we're just going to put it out for free because oh, um, fantastic. Very timely. yeah, I mean, I've, for 25 years, my companies that we've always had a remote first environment yeah. when everyone thought it was crazy. And um, so I just thought like, okay, beyond just video on, you know, how do you maintain recognition? How do you maintain motivation? How do you maintain personal? But anyway, we're, we went down a rabbit hole on that one, but yeah, That's interesting great. times. I'll look out for that. And what, and you're putting that out for free. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, uh, I know we we're connected now on Twitter. You'll see, um, we're going to do it, do it live, uh, today. And then we're going to put the recording up as quickly as we can. And, you know, I'll promote it out on all the yeah. social feeds and things. Yeah. Um, but really um, interesting though, isn't it? Because I wonder, so like, it sounds like you were a pioneer of remote first, but, um, but, it's really interesting whether it's going to trigger a tipping point of right. other organizations. I mean, I was just chatting to one of my former colleagues at Twitter and he said yeah. to me, they are anticipating, so they're all, they've all been sent home. Right. He said, we're anticipating it will be three months. Wow. Wow. Right. I mean, that's, that's big, right? That, where, because it's not just a week, right? Where, no. or, or two weeks, basically that's, that's a right. holiday for everybody. That's everybody just right. decides to go on holiday. If it's three months, if it's a solid business quarter, you know everyone's going to have to figure out how to get business done that's in right. that remote, remote thing. Yeah, and plus as well, go on. Well, no, I was going to say, and actually, I mean, you do write about, you know, this topic yeah. of, of remote and I, I, I'll end up asking you officially about some of these kind of duality things and the remote work, you know, it's one I've struggled with uh, a long time because, you know, you think it's the wave and like the base camp guys who I've had, I've interviewed them as well. They're all about, you know, remote, yeah. remote work first. And yet, you know, the, the Yahoo uh, edict, that's a few years old now, but was yeah. it shocked people, but it made sense. Like, hey, yeah. we got some serious work to do in this company right. and we're going to move faster and collaborate better if you all come into the office. So sorry, right. but get, get in here. And um this is going to force that experiment. And of course, the tech companies are, are probably the most open-minded about it, most um, able to adapt. They already have the technology. Everybody's got what they need. But you see a lot of the non-tech companies saying, hey, we're telling people to work from home if they can. And this really could become a tipping point, I think. Yeah. I think what it forces us to do is to debate the difference between inputs and outputs. Because, you know, the challenge of modern work is it's very difficult to work out when someone has created something today, when someone has done, when someone has produced something today, it's very right. difficult. And so we measure it quite often by presenteeism. You know, oh, they seem to be in early and out late because we can't really tell otherwise. And I think more than anything, it's going to force us to try and answer that question. What is a productive day at work? Yeah. I, and I, well, that's always been my argument why managers hate work from home. It's because they actually don't know how to manage. That's right. They're managing by, are you over there? Do I see the top of your head by your cube? 
Now, you could be playing a game on your phone, checking social media. You could be just, you know, doing nothing. But I see you there. So, okay, you're at least here eight hours a day. Or, or Kevin's here nine hours a day. Boy, he's a real go-getter. That's right. That's right. <laughs> working from home, they're like, uh-oh, are they goofing off? Are they sleeping? Yeah. Are they in their pajamas? Yeah. Wrong questions. Yeah, absolutely. What's the expectation for the results-only work? Like, right? What, what's the work that, that we're expecting? And did they do it or not? And yeah. if we can get people to really understand that. Um, but it isn't easy. And my CTO, Lucas, uh, Lucas Carlson, he was telling me the other day, uh, you know, we do these daily check-ins through Basecamp and about work. Like, what do we complete today? I always put the emphasis on complete. And he, he had, you know, was busy and he forgot for a couple of days and we were talking about it. And he said, I forgot that communicating the work is actually the work itself. Yes, yes, <laughs> Until yes. you've communicated it, it doesn't exist. You know, so yeah. it's that communication that needs to happen on it. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, boy, I can tell if we ever uh, meet in a, a pub over a pint, we're going to have a good time because yeah, we just absolutely. fell right into it. Absolutely. And where are you based this morning? Uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, okay. East okay. Coast. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, let me just, I know you're doing a lot of, lot of media. So what, what this is going to be is it first goes out on the LeadX Leadership Show, short format podcast, doing, you know, doing for a few years. Um, and then we take uh, an edited down transcript and that will become a Forbes.com article. Okay. Um, and so your book uh, is out already, right? Yeah, it came out last week. Yeah, last week. So I'm going to tell my producer to try to push, okay. push this into production as quickly as possible just to sort of help with some of the, um, the launch things. And so fairly short format, very informal, and I'll record your official intro, you know, bef later when, when you're yeah. not here. And um, I mean, so at this point, it's just sort of like good. officially welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show. Thank you. So lovely to chat to you. We've already been just diving right into it. But let, so let me start with the uh, obligatory um, first question, you know, you've had a long, very successful career, most recently at Twitter, but also Google and YouTube. And Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat actually started as your own podcast, which everybody can, if they're not already subscribers, they can go and, and subscribe everywhere. Um, how did you get interested in the topic yourself? And then how did the book itself come about? So, yeah, I mean, I do, it's, it's my own podcast. I, I do everything myself. It's actually sort of um, there's something about having then getting your hands dirty and doing it yourself. It's sort of, I felt more connected to it. I was really interested in how I could make the workplace culture at my organization, actually how, how I could get it back to the, the, <laughs> the vintage era. So it, it had been wonderful. And I'm a big evangelist as a result of that. I'm a big evangelist for, um, for recognizing that good workplace cultures can be really energizing. They can be, they can drive just exceptional results from teams. And, you know, teams can feel uh, completely bonded to the organization. There can be a real sense of a sort of t collective mission. Um, and we'd had that when I'd first been part of the launch team for, for Twitter in the UK. And then I think probably a combination of circumstances, my actions, a few other people's actions, something went wrong. Mm. And I, I was very much someone who felt responsible, but I wanted to try to 
I mean, maybe it was a fanciful idea. It's a bit like trying to get your party going again when all the guests are leaving, you know, and you've got this idea in your head. You know, all I need to do right now is change the music. All I need to do now is go and open that bottle of dot, dot, dot. You know, you've got this idea in your head that you can save the day. And I was very much for the opinion, right, okay, I don't want this to be, you know, the sort of dwindling and, and uh, the, the culture disappearing. So I set about thinking, what can I do to try, and, to try and revive it? And here's what I discovered. So I started chatting to, um, on my podcast, chat, chatting to people who study organizational psychology, people who study how organizations work. Firstly, there's a whole realm of science, social science, who study how we work. And I had no idea because in the whole time I'd been in my job, I'd never seen any of their output. So it's like this strange thing where, you know, it's, it's, um, it's all this, it's, it's almost like, you know, you've got David Attenborough studying the animals and yet we never, we never tell the animals what we've discovered about them. But Bruce, let me, and I'm going to be interrupting you because this is so much good stuff, but I got to interrupt. So wait a second, you're at a company and this is, you know, but by the time you're, interested in this stuff and discovering organizational psychology. They didn't really know that that work was going on. You know, Twitter's grown up by, by this point. So you didn't have a leadership development program that was kind of teaching you about how to create great culture and how to engage your team members. But, but let me tell you, so, um, so some of the things in there are, you know, the, the best teams have a combination of psychological safety and, uh, and positive affect, where positive affect is sort of the mood we're in. I always say to people there, you know, the, the, it's sort of a, a strange one, positive affect. It's, it's effectively, it's fundamentally, it comes down to what you knew when you were five years old. You knew that there was a good time to ask your mum for some candy, and there was a bad time to ask your mum, right? You knew, why? Because you knew that your mum's mood determined the answer she would give. Yeah. And that's what positive affect is. It's the mood we're in, affects the job we do and it might be that if we're in a overstressed burnt out wretched exhausted mood we're more likely to say no to a colleague's suggestion or we're more likely to decline to help and so the mood we're in often has an impact on the job we do and here's the strange thing about that is that some firms believe that you, you resolve that by giving people smoothies or breakfast or you know and 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 extra perks and benefits the other one is psychological safety. And while this concept has existed for 15, 20 years, there was certainly no management training that I went on that in any way gave me an insight to it, prepared me for it. And psychological safety, the underpinnings of it, um, it's, it's so fascinating to, to study how much it, it, it impacts us. But it's this idea um, of candid conversation, of transparency, the ability to speak truth to power, the ability for your colleagues or your boss or um, to, to, or the people who report to you to tell you what they really think of, of your ideas. And the woman who did the most work on it is a, a wonderful researcher called Amy Edmondson. Mm. And she, she was looking at hospitals. She, she was trying to work out something that really was an enigma to her. She'd identified the best performing hospital teams but then she, um, she looked at the, and she had all this remarkable data that was sort of showing what were the best teams. And then she looked at which teams were making, so she looked at about 30 teams. Then she looked at which teams were making 
uh, more prescription drug errors. So they were giving the wrong medicine to patients. And she discovered the best teams were, were making several times more mistakes when it came to giving medicine to patients than the worst teams. And she was really baffled by this. Why would they be making so many more mistakes? Well, she went and she interviewed people. She discovered that that piece of uh, that metric, that piece of data was self-reported. And so what that meant was uh, you needed a nurse to say, I've given the wrong medicine mm. to the patient. And what she discovered was that there are some environments where there's a degree of trust. There's no blame. There's no responsibility held. That If you make a genuine but heartfelt error, of course, you know, that's human to, to sort of err is human. And what she discovered was the best teams weren't making more mistakes. The best teams were just admitting to making more mistakes. Yeah. And so you're, you're a nurse on a ward and you make an error. Well, well, what do you do? If you believe that the consequence of you making that error is that you will get fired or yeah. warned or have like a, a note written next to your name, you don't tell anyone. You go home and you pray that nothing bad happens. If you're in a trusting environment where you know, there's, there's a degree of mutual trust with people and you make a mistake, what do you do? Well, you go and tell someone so that someone else can make up for it. And I think, you know, so that psychological safety, um, the, you know, the companies I've worked at have been really generous in, in the training and the development. But I, I don't think that those concepts were definitely, you know, in, in my time, they weren't becoming mainstream in terms of what we were being taught. You, you mentioned, um, you know, some of the companies will, will throw the perks, you know, the free stuff uh, as a thinking that that drives culture or engagement. And I, I want you to um, speak a little bit more to that. I actually saw a clip of, of you. I, I don't know where you were at the time being interviewed, but you said something I thought was a little provocative where anytime you see someone's uh, office space and they have like that big red slide, you know, down the middle, you said that's marketing. That's yeah. marketing. So what do you mean by that? Um, what I mean by it is that we can often find ourselves and look, you know, I was, I was thrilled, enamored, excited about the prospect of going to work at a tech firm. Why? Because we've seen the, spent the last two decades witnessing this marketing to us that if you're not working at a tech firm, you're somehow working at something inferior, right? And, you know, it comes at us from all sides. They're all working on these incredible apps that we love opening on our phone. They seem to... They seem to wear what they want. They've got these jelly bean walls. People are just coming down uh, slides. You know, when they get down to the bottom of slides, there's kittens for them to cuddle. Like we're sort of, we're living this Mariah Carey showbiz pampered life. That You're not even exaggerating. That literally, I'm I'm seeing recently about yeah. puppy time. Like, go right. play with the puppies. Right. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's like if we if we heard that this was the regime of of the North Korean dictator, would go yeah about. And so we've sort of created this. Um, uh, so what's happened is we all of us have thought, wow, unless I'm working there, somehow my organization is stale. And, and you know, there's a fundamental truth. And I think we're discovering it more and more over the last few years that in, in almost every instance, comparison leads to unhappiness. That's so right. if, we, if, we leave, if we find our, ourselves comparing our jobs to these jobs, of course, what do we do? We immediately think, I need one of those jobs. I need one of mm -hmm. those jobs. We start coveting working at these organizations. And, you know, I can tell you having uh, not only worked in a, a couple of t tech organizations, but having spoken to dozens of people about candidly about their experience, it is, 
there is a, more than a degree of misdirection there. There's more than a degree of overclaim, overpromise, suggestion of things that aren't necessarily the case. So my point was, when you do see a slide, so I have worked in an organization that has slides coming through your buildings. In fact, let me tell you, it becomes an arms race because they say the San Bruno office has got this sort of bouncy slide, but the Zurich office has got a windy, twisty slide. And then, <laughs> and then people, but let me tell you, people, apart from children who come to the office, which, you know, they're often captivated with this, this playground, this Disneyland, but no one uses the slides. Yeah. And so what you're looking at is something that looks amazing on someone's Instagram. It looks, it makes anyone who sees it from afar feel that their job is, is, is uh, monochrome in comparison. And so as a result of that, what we're looking at is something that isn't real. You know, it's yeah. marketing, it's not culture. We, we look at that and we think, wow, what a playful, uh, un, un, unencumbered, there's no sort of, there's no rigidity to that place. And of course, let me tell you, cut to the day-to-day -day experience of people in those jobs, and they're in as many meetings as you are, and they're filling in as many spreadsheets as you are, and they're answering as many emails as you are. And, you know, so while we might sit there thinking, oh, really, I need one of those jobs, what I would say is my lesson is getting a job where you feel that you can make a contribution, getting a job where you've got a degree of autonomy, of agency, right. of, of sort of individual responsibility is far more uh, rewarding for you than something that gives you uh, a slide through the office. Uh, um, so, so much good stuff there too. I mean, I'm even thinking like now, how many people are thinking like, is that office lobby Instagram worthy or not? You know, it really right. does become like a marketing thing and to compare is to despair. I always remind my, my teenagers, you know, who are, you know, too much time on that. L let me turn more directly to your new book, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. And um, you have them uh, chunked into different sections, um, hacks to recharge, uh, to, to sync and make teams feel closer, and then the buzz, you know, to create energized teams. And a lot of these, um, my longtime listeners and readers, you know, will be familiar with some of the things that I preach and just so believe in, you know, have a monk mode morning. And I love that chapter title, walking meetings, turning off notifications, the power of sleep cut out, you know, many of your meetings. There's so many great practical things. And I want to let the listeners know that all of your hacks are like grounded in research. You've spoken to the expert, you've you dug in deep in the research, but you're now presenting them in an accessible way that you're going to remember and be able to apply at yeah. work. That You're like the whisperer of these organizational psychologists out there. Look, and, and, uh, and someone said, a Wired article the other day said that it was a laundry list of the blatantly obvious. But you know, <laughs> here's what I'll say. <laughs> um, another satisfied customer. But, um, <laughs> but what I'll say is that uh, I, th I think it goes marginally beyond the blatantly obvious. But, you know, so, so, so some of those things, you know, look, walking meetings, for example, are something that actually a lot of us find that the average US worker spends 16 hours a week in meetings. And so if, you, if you're in a day where you've got back-to-back -back meetings, then what you discover very quickly is that if you take your next meeting as a walking meeting, and it might be just you and your colleague walk down the stairs or out of the building to the coffee shop at the end of the street and you walk back, or you might work, walk 
you might work somewhere far more uh, beautiful, scenic, and you can actually you can walk somewhere nice. But uh, what you find is that if you if you do those things, um, you can actually you, you just feel more energized. You feel at the end of the day that your day was better. I went for a walk with someone the other day, and you know, as an alternative of sitting down and sharing a coffee with them, it just felt liberating. So look, you know, what I've done there is I've gathered some of the research, the evidence, because what I found was that a lot of us don't, we, we don't find ourselves as the job, uh, the, as the boss. And so, you know, we, we, we're in a situation where if we turn up and we give an opinion, which is we want to change the way that we do our meetings, or we want to change the, the way that, that our team um, our team engages with each other or, you know, a big one for me is turning, is banning weekend emails. Mm. But, you know, if, if you turn up and you say, I think we should ban weekend emails, I suspect your boss will say, I don't think we should. <laughs> and if it comes down to a battle of opinions, my opinion's worth more than your opinion. And right. so my feeling was that, you know, if you're going to win this debate, um, you need to have an argument. Uh, and you need to have some evidence. So I saw the book as a little bit like a cookbook in the sense that, you know, you might be sitting there. I think, I personally think sort of the iPhone to some extent has given us an unfair expectation about how things change. Because every August, every September, there's a big unveiling and the new model of the future is unveiled. And unfortunately, that's never going to happen with work. We're, we're never going to see someone say, Hey guys, we've got a new version of work and it's, <laughs> and it's less appalling than the old version. So, um, so, you know, for me, it was really critical where um, we, we sort of thought about, um, we, we thought about what evidence, we, uh, you know, we, we, th we think about what evidence we can give to help inform these discussions. And so my, I envisaged a situation where someone was taking this into a team offsite, a team, you know, away day where we're, you're going away and there might be agenda items all day and at 5 p.m. someone says oh should we do something about you know our team dynamic and enter the passionate troublemaker who's really believed that the way that the meetings are working isn't successful and they bring that out into the the team discussion so so absolutely there's sort of 30 provocations you don't have to read all of them but hopefully they they give you some evidence for whatever you might believe well, and I think, you know, unlike the, uh, the funny review that you, you uh, shared, uh, like I found some and, you know, all 30 are great with our very limited time. I'm just like, hey, where do I focus the attention? There are some things that I wrestle with and wanted to bring up to, to kind of talk about yeah. um, the back and forth. And like, for example, uh, you have, you know, uh, sink number eight, know when to leave people alone. Um, but there's this thing, and that's how you start this chapter. I'm just going to uh, read a bit of it. Um, you know, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak's view of how the best ideas are created may come as something of a shock after everything I've said about the need for teamwork, because he believed it was sort of a solo uh, activity. And yet, you also share that Steve Jobs agonized over Pixar and then later, you know, Apple headquarters, because he wanted to bring teams together. So, which is it? Yeah, this, well, I, I think you get to the very heart of why this is sometimes confounding. So what Steve Wozniak said, I think, um, uh, his, uh, his time, was it at Hewlett-Packard? I can't remember the year. He was, uh, or IBM. He was at, somewhere before yeah. he joined Apple. I, I list it in there, but I can't remember which. I think it's Hewlett-Packard. He, um, he described uh, a scenario where he, they would spend their mornings um, working for two hours. 
and then he said at 11 p.m. and 3 p.m. Uh, 3 p.m. I think it was 3:30. There was a trolley that used to come through the organisation. So I recognised different times, different era. <laughs> but he said what happened was people would punctuate their their working, and they would get up and they would grab a coffee or a donut or a a, a cookie from the trolley. And he said what happened was people would gather at the trolley. And chatter. And even when the trolley had moved off, they would stand, mm-hmm. stand there and chatter. And he said it really informed his mind of how creativity worked. Because what would happen was you'd be immersed in this sort of deep work, in, in this reflective concentration. Then you'd stand up and you, you might sort of exchange a quick chat about the game last night or a quick chat about TV last night with someone. But then you'd say, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think of this? And what would happen was that effectively our ideas are, have the, the rough edges sandpapered off them by other people's winces, reactions, smiles. And he, he, it, for him, it was a really informative model of how creativity works, that creativity and whether it's the songwriting of the Beatles or whether it's you know, your favourite comedy show, The Simpsons or, or right. um, Modern Family, is almost, or almost always written by a single person who then goes into a writing room and the, all of the other writers have read it and they all come in with their gags to contribute. So what have you got? You've got a combination of long periods of solitude combined with this sort of kinetic yep. frisson of people sort of bouncing things across each other. And I think we can make the mistake sometimes that when we witness the second part of that process, we we think that that's what creativity is. And we delete from that, that whole uh, trail of evidence, the fact that you know, hard work leads to creativity. You don't just come up with a, you know, you don't just come up with a Beatles song by someone just walking into the room and start jamming it. It's normally often someone sat there playing with a chord progression, playing with an idea, then they take it into the writing room. You said a word, uh, you talked about this kinetic uh, experience and and something I'm going to think about. I mean, I think the literal definition of that word has something to do. The Wozniak story, it isn't just that it was solo work and then we, you know, chatted as a team, we shared ideas. They were physically moving to a different place, yeah. the trolley. They were breathing, they were getting something to drink, they were moving. I almost think there's a physical energy, which if that's true, if that's part of it, then, you know, we, we stumbled uh, before the official part of the interview. We were talking about remote work. Yeah. And that could become a problem because so it, it, we, we could, in theory, say, hey, everybody heads down, do your own thing. And at 10 o'clock, let's all jump on a chat and share our ideas. But I don't know if that's going to have the same impact as let me stand up, walk over there, breathe, drink, chat socially well. first. You know, I couldn't agree more. And there's a strange thing that, you know, we can observe some of this. We can observe that there seems to be a dark matter of, of human synchronization that transforms our experience. So I'll give you one example. There was a, a really in, interesting experiment where um, an Oxford University professor in, in the UK got a group of rowers. So they're famous for having a, a rowing team that are sort of incredibly successful. And um, he got a group of these rowers and he put half of the rowers individually on rowing machines in individual rooms. And he asked them to row for about 10 minutes. They were given you know, instruction. They're immensely competitive people. So they, they set about trying to row as hard as they could. 
he got another group and he put them on a rowing machine that he lined up the rowing machines he lined up as a boat and he said here's my instruction to you i want you to row for 10 minutes but you need to row in stroke with each other in time with each other that was the difference at the end of it they tested the endorphin levels of mm. these people so the pleasure hormone levels and the, you, you sort of um you can take a reading uh from from people's arms actually so you, you measure that and uh, what he discovered was that those who'd been rowing connected to other people, their pleasure hormones were twice the level of those who weren't. And it's a, a really interesting reminder that as humans, even as introverts, we, we animalistically get more of our energy from being around others by design than, yeah. than we might imagine. There was a really, um, there's a wonderful book that I read, um, last year or the year before called lost connections which is by a guy called johan hari and if you're interested um he's done two wonderful ted talks but his second ted talk is ostensibly about depression um but but actually it teaches us so much about humanity that it, it goes beyond that and he he has a really fascinating insight in his book he talks about how um he talks about how depression if we use the word disconnected instead of depressed it might be more helpful for us understanding what's going on because he witnessed that people who are depressed generally connect with fewer people. They feel, they feel disconnected from what's around them. And he, just, he gave this very vivid story halfway through, which is that there's a strange thing in humans' programming that people who sleep alone wake up around 10 to 20 times a night hmm. for these micro wake-ups. Why? Because we're programmed, you know, but we've, we've evolved to, uh, to fear being alone. We fear, you know, what's the danger? And so our body just instinctively wakes up and just checks our surroundings. And it's really interesting. It's a vivid thing because, you know, then you're reminded that when we are working remotely or when we're living on our mm -hmm. own, that our experience might be different to when we're part of a, a group. And so look, you know, what can you, you do if you work remotely? Well, I think the more you understand the science right. of human synchronization, you can adapt to it. One of the things that organizations that work completely remotely um, often learn by sort of trial and error. Oh, when we get together, we need to really connect with each other. Right. When we get together in real life, we sort of, let's not do so much PowerPoint. Let's do more chatter. Let's, yeah. you know, go and have a, a, a sort of fun laugh with each other let's have an enjoyable dinner with each other let's not let's just not go and sit um watching uh powerpoint slides and i think it's just a good reminder that we we get a lot of the our energy from other people and feeling connected to other people is an important part of feeling part of something bigger than ourselves love it <clears throat> another one that sort of jumped out at me is, is something I've been wrestling and just eager to hear your thoughts on. And this is in your chapter, um, Buzz 3, you know, keep teams lean. But the, the part that's jumping out, it, it isn't even the team's part so much, but, but you're talking about um, the research uh, uh, Yale professor Stanley Eisenstadt did. And it was about how much more productive some people are than, than others. And you say, you know, some students he established were able to complete their assignments in one-tenth of the time that others devoted to them. This wasn't necessarily because they were more able, they were simply more efficient. He also discovered there was no ultimate correlation between time spent and grades earned, which for a lot of people, 
they're either going to just not believe this or their heads are going to explode because the, the suggestion <laughs> is that it's not so much the, the people who, who are spending less time on something. It's not that they're more able and smarter and they just happen to be born that way. Uh, and it doesn't mean they're going to automatically get a, an inferior result. Time does not correlate very well to the output. And I, I wrote a book about time and productivity, and that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Um, and in the tech world, there's this concept of the 10x engineer. In fact, it was a bit of a joke last year on Twitter. It kind of blew up about yeah. whether there's truly a 10x engineer or how do you spot a 10x engineer. And, I, you know, I, I got to tell you, Bruce, like I always kind of I heard about, oh, you know, there are certain engineers out there where one person can do the same amount of work as 10 engineers. And at first, I was like, eh, I don't believe that. Then I was like, well, maybe, but it isn't 10x. I, I hired a, a new CTO over a year ago, Lucas Carlson. Now, I don't know if he's 10x, but he's at least 5x. I mean, <laughs> until I actually worked with someone, and I've worked with a lot of engineers, like I, I didn't know. And I've spoken to him about it. And he says, no, no, it's not intelligence or anything else. But what's your take on this? And I mean, how are some teams and some people able to get the same or superior results with literally one-tenth the time that others are spending on something? Yeah, I mean, it, it's confounding. So, you know, that, that, um, that example you gave there, the, um, the, so just the, the amount of time. So that uh, Stanley Eisenstadt was the, the professor who wanted to understand it. But in fact, when that work was taken, so Jeff Sutherland, who was, um, who was a software developer, he was really interested in taking that principle. And so he took that methodology and he started looking at the, uh, the amount of time it takes teams to work on a project. And he discovered that the, the best teams, it, it was a certain amount, uh, it was a, a finite sized project. He discovered that the best teams were able to get a certain project done in about two and a half months. However, the worst teams in the same situation took, uh, I think, I mean, I'm just glancing at it in my, yeah. in my book here. To, to give me, it's, um, it was... It was something work, like 2,400 hours or 24,000. Yeah. 2,000 weeks. I don't even know. 2,000 weeks. It was like insanely different. It was insane. It was insane. <laughs> and it's largely because, some, you know, often, like, say the project is, I want you to design the new marketing identity of my co company. Well, it's very easy to do that as, okay, we've got three weeks to do it. We're going to design the market. Or it's very easy to do that going, okay, well, what we need is focus groups. We'll have a check-in meeting. We all meet. We'll have a dialing call at four o'clock. Okay, can everyone bring their ideas? And what happens is that we're almost when a team's too big, the, the amounts of connections, the, amounts, the amount of, sort of work about work that happens goes up exponentially. And it's almost, you know, and that's to the, um, the original point about the work. It, it appears, so a brand identity for my company the, the quality of work, if you do 2,000 weeks, than if you do 10 weeks or five weeks, of course, you know, you're both just going to have two brand identities. There are opinions. But one isn't going to be 50 times better than the right. other. Of course it's not because the, these are things about taste, opinion, aesthetics. And I think that was an interesting lesson. So, you know, the point of that, Jeff, Jeff Sutherland went on to create the Scrum methodology, this right. sort of agile methodology where he said quite often big projects um they become so locked up in in status meetings so locked up in meetings about meetings that there's no productivity being done and so his methodology 
which seems to work incredibly well for software, but not always as effectively for, for other things. Um, but his methodology was all about, well, how do you get these faster feedback loops? There's no meetings about meetings. It's all on very fast execution paths. Um, and how can we do things a lot quicker? And, and shrinking that communication cycle, which we had mentioned um, yeah. earlier too, about you know the uh, uh, making sure everybody knows what what's been finished or what the hangup is or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's right. And small teams who can see what they're doing, because quite often, you know, if you find that you're going to meetings and there's people in the meetings you don't recognise and these these you know a whole load of factors connecting you with other organizations what you end up doing inevitably what we all end up doing is spending more time on communication right. and less time on actually doing our let me ask you this and we didn't prep this question ahead of time so if it's like hey i'm going to skip on this answer that's okay too <laughs> you you were spent the last eight ish years at twitter yeah. right <clears throat> I wrote about Jack Dorsey in one of my books, I think maybe two of my books, and I've never met him, don't, don't know anything personally about him. And to me, there's, again, this sort of two different things going on when we talk about work and life and productivity. Uh, Jack is someone who I believe, you know, every year he goes off on this Vipassana meditation retreat, like totally unplugs from work and yeah. works on himself. And he's talked about how that's really helps him in his career. That sounds great to me. I think more of us should be meditating and doing things. He's also someone who's the CEO of two large companies. And I don't know if he still does it, but at one point he said, oh, well, I spend the first eight hours of my day over at Square or Twitter, whichever one, and the other one at the other one, the next eight hours of the day at the other one. And, you know, 16-hour long work days, most people would think is not really healthy for productivity yeah. or he, balance, he, et cetera. He now, you've... No, no. So, so someone who's worked in an organization has worked with him. Like, what's your take on what? What do we make of all of this? Um, I've I've got the the most time for Jack. He's like the the uh, the most humble and the sort of the um, he's the least troubled with ego person that I, I can sort of recall meeting. No, so Jack generally walks to work. He generally gets to his first job about half past eight in the morning, eight or half past eight in the morning. He works till lunchtime. Uh, he doesn't eat lunch most days. He goes across the road to the other organization square and then he works about four or five hours there and then heads home. Um, so he's so, splitting his time, but it's yeah, not absolutely. these crazy 16-hour yeah, stretches. And I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say I'm not revealing anything because he's tweeted out that, he gets seven and a half, eight hours sleep every night. So, you know, he doesn't economize on the, the most essential part. So I think all of that's pretty public domain-y. And, um, but yeah, no, he's, he doesn't model something that I think any of us would look at and say, that's unsustainable. Yeah, it, it's, um, but, but it is something to, um, even with the pressures that he's under in that kind of a role, he's prioritizing sleep. He's prioritizing He's prioritizing uh, you know, uh, retreats for himself to, to recover, which is all, uh, important, um, as well. Um, Bruce, I could talk this, I mean, this is, this is the stuff I, I eat, sleep and work all the yes. day, all, all day. Um, I wish we had more time. Um, but I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to just grab it because even if all 30 
hacks don't apply. Like I said, some you'll be able to apply and do in your own world right away. And others, you'll have the ammunition and the arguments to begin to, to be a change agent and to be an advocate um, in the organization. The new book again, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job from Bruce Daisley, of course. Bruce, if people want to find out more about the book and more about your work, how to stay in touch, where do we send them? Yeah, well, I mean, everything's at my website, which is uh, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And, you know, the, the critical thing for me is that, you know, all of that started with my podcast, all of that started really with um, just me having a curiosity with, with this. So you can, you can, you know, sign up for emails or you can uh, just come along and, and uh, take a look there. So that's probably the best place, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Perfect. We'll put that link in all the right places. Uh, Bruce, thanks for coming on the LeadX Leadership Show and for sharing out all the work you've been doing. So grateful to chat to you. Thank you so much. Friends, if you like this episode of the LeadX Leadership Podcast, please take a minute, leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Ratings are invaluable for attracting new listeners. And I like to convert those listeners into leaders because you know I'm on a mission to spark 100 million leaders in the next 10 years. And if you wanna become the boss everyone fights to work for and nobody wants to leave, Check out the LeadX platform with Coach Amanda at leadx.org. And if you have 10 or more managers who could use some binge-worthy training, send me an email at info at leadx.org, L-E-A-D-X dot O-R-G, and we'll talk about getting you set up with a totally free pilot for those managers. See if they like it. If they don't, that's fine. We go away. Part as friends. But if they love it, you've just found yourself a new resource for them. Remember, leadership is influence. You're always leading. How are you going to lead today?